Show me the money. Welcome to the MoneyWeb Market Commentator Podcast, where leading investment professionals share their investment insights. Your host, Rake van Niekerk. Welcome to this Market Commentator Podcast. It's my weekly podcast where I speak to the leading investment professionals in the country, and we try to get some insights into their perceptions of the market as well as what they are buying and selling. My guest today is Arno Lawrence. He's the Chief Investment Officer at SASFIN. He has been in this position since the beginning of the year when he succeeded Philip Bradford. And before SASFIN, he was the Head of Fixed Income and a Global Investment Strategist at Ashburton Investments. And prior to Ashburton, he was uh, at Coronation where he launched their Strategic Income Fund, which at the time was the first flexible income fund in the country. He later founded Atlantic Asset Management, which was sold to Ashburton a few years later. Arno, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you joined SASFIN at the beginning of the year, and it has been a roller coaster of a year so far. How did you find the investment approach at SASFIN when you came there, and have you tweaked it a bit subsequently? Thanks, uh, Rake. It's always uh, good to be uh, back and chatting again. So, yes, I... You know, I think uh, the fact that the, there were raging bull awards for performance, uh, both outright as well as on a risk-adjusted basis, does tell you something about the investment process. And, and certainly when I joined SASFIN, um, what I, my role was really to ensure consistency of process um, and outcome. And I think, you know, what we've seen over the course of this year hopefully is or does bear testimony to the fact that, you know, with the help of the, the team that we, we have got, that we've been able to keep going in terms of the, the performance side of things. So you became the CIO and you have to manage or lead uh, a bunch of award-winning fund managers. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. D did you jump in and get your hands dirty? Yeah, look, you know, certainly, uh, you know, one of the things has been that, you know, I've spent many years of, of my life in uh, in the fixed income space, um, as well as at Ashburton on the, the global multi-asset space. So certainly in terms of that, I think it was important for me to be able to bring some of those insights into the decision-making process. But, you know, again, what we're trying to do is to build a, a core team of, of investment professionals that, you know, again, you know, hopefully one day when I work myself out of a job, uh, that the team continues uh, and, and, and to continue delivering it at, at high level. I think that really is what excited me, in fact, and, and why I joined SASWIN was precisely because the, the role that they asked me to play was, in fact, to build that team and that capability. So certainly it's a very exciting time for me. Are there significant differences between the inner workings of different asset managers? Well, look, I've worked with a good number of them now. So, you know, you mentioned Coronation. Um, and subsequent to that, I was at Old Mutual. Uh, and uh, I started the boutique asset management in terms of Atlantic. And there's Ashburton. So I've, I've been at the very small and the very large. Certainly, um, there are differences, yes. I, I think overall, within the investment industry, high level of talent, high levels of insight. There are many uh, people across the industry that I have uh, great regard for uh, in terms of competitors and and the decision-making processes. And, and certainly, uh, you know, there, there are various levels of bureaucracy as well, especially in the larger ones. But they're, they're there for a reason, in a sense, because – you know, of the size of, the, of some of these companies. And, and certainly I think where SASFIN fits in is, 
somewhere in between in a way. And I, I think the way we like to position ourselves is a boutique with a brand. So you, you have the, the nimbleness and the flexibility in terms of decision making. But the brand does mean that, you know, there's something to protect and uh, there is a, you know, a, a system of governance and, and risk oversight that takes place within the organization. And it's that combination for me, in a sense, what I've seen at Sassman is, is that there's that sweet spot where you almost get the best of both worlds um, in, a, in a way. How big is your team? Um, well, if you're thinking about the broader team in terms of the um, analysis side of things, um, obviously we, there's the broader SASFIN team. I actually do not know the, the number of analysts in total that covers it. But um, again, on the fixed income side of things, there's probably, I'd probably say there's four guys uh, and ladies as well, if I can sort of add in that, not just men, you know, that that's focused on the fixed income side of things. Oh, no, let's talk about the market and especially fixed income, which is your speciality. Uh, I've seen several of your funds, you've really performed well over the past year. Um, for example, I can see the uh, high yield fund uh, has returned nine and a quarter percent over the past year, which is significantly higher than the benchmark, which is three and a half percent. And um, also your flexible income fund, which is close to an 8 billion rand fund, the yield over 11% over the past year. What has your approach been to, to fixed income and what is the risk profile attached to those yields? Yeah, so just, just to differentiate between the two funds, so the high yield fund is what we would call an, a floating rate, rate fund, where generally speaking, as interest rates fall, then you're going to see the yields on that fund fall as well. We make use of quite a bit of credit within the fund in terms of corporate bonds and so forth. So generally speaking, they would be linked to typically the three-month job bar rate, whereas the flexible income fund is more, let's call it an asset allocation type fund within the fixed income space. So it can invest in inflation linkers, it can invest in fixed rate bonds, can invest into floating rates, etc. So in terms of the, the, the success of these two funds, I think if I, if I touched on the high yield fund, uh, certainly there's a core of assets which is delivered, uh, uh, you know, that, that base three-month job bar rate that we call it, plus a margin. We've also added some additional securities in which typically would be structured around that and taking advantage of the steepness of the yield curve. Um, and then in the flexible fund, I think the key to success there, which obviously is our biggest fund as well, being it's actually just gone over 8 billion rand this week, you know, the key there has been perhaps I'd highlight two things. The one was the active duration management. So uh, again, you have this flexibility of if you are pessimistic or bearish about where bond yields are going to in South Africa, you can cut the duration down to, you know, fairly low levels. Or if you think that the, you know, bond yields are going to rise, you can increase that duration. I think we've done that quite successfully during the course of this year. So we started out fairly low. Then we saw, remember, at the beginning of the year with Joe Biden coming in uh, and this promise of this massive fiscal stimulus and infrastructure bill, uh, and you saw yields in the U.S. You know, go from, you know, they practically doubled. So I think we're from 0.8% on the 10-year level to 1.6 in the space of two months. So quite a significant shock in the interest rate world. And, you know, South African yields followed. And when it peaked out, you know, we added on to the duration again. And then we had this bit of a risk on type environment where people said, well, look at the global economy. It's starting to recover. We're emerging out of COVID and the recovery is in sight. And so there was this risk on type environment and you saw bond yields falling again in South Africa. And into that strength, we basically started cutting duration again. 
September, we had a bit of a bad month as far as risk assets were concerned and yields sold off. And uh, we started building up our duration again. So it's been the duration management. And number two, I think is an well, what important do you, What do you mean by duration yeah. management? Ah, so that's essentially, you know, I won't get too technical on it. Um, so duration is really a measure of, uh, in a sense, a uh, it's a risk measure for income or bond funds. And typically the way to understand this is, Typically, a longer-term bond would have a longer duration. Uh, so it's a, almost a term to maturity type of side of things. And what they do, they do really is they look at the, the underlying uh, present value of the underlying cash flows as a, as a weighting of when you're actually receiving the cash flows or the interest payments on that actual bond. So it's a measure of risk that, that we use. So essentially what it means is the higher the duration, the more volatility you would expect to see within the fund. So mm. when we say we cut duration, we say we, we're reducing the risk within the fund. I rudely interrupted you there. You were saying about credit risk? Ah, so I think it's an important point to be made here as well, is that the other additional element in fixed income that sometimes is ignored and, and almost is not sort of taken into account is credit risk uh, within a fund. So this is where you move beyond you know, government bonds, and you start looking at corporate bonds, uh, bonds that are issued by banks. Where are you in their cap- capital structure? Are you? Is it a secured bond? Is it? Uh, is it subordinated? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And what you've seen in the in this world, this global context that we live in at the moment, where, as you know, is that global interest rates are at very low levels, and so there's this almost global search for yield. So, you know, what you've seen is credit spreads. That uh, that is the additional yield that corporate bonds offer over and above a government bond have actually been reducing. So typically, if you think about it, uh, over the last year, the Saab cut rates, interest rates in South Africa to essentially, you know, their lowest levels in certainly in my career. And so what fund managers in, in a way said, well, how can we compensate for this lack of income yield? Well, we can take on more credit risk. And so because of the surge in demand, it's really a price function, supply and demand. And so what you see is that the credit spreads have reduced. So the additional return you're getting by going down this risk spectrum has actually been re- uh, reduced. And what we've got to the stage is that we're saying credit spreads in South Africa and in a global context for many a- areas are actually too low. And so certainly what we haven't been doing is chasing after yield by going into the credit risk spectrum. And I think that's sort of really the, the point I want you to make on, on that one. South Africa has always been seen as one of the developing countries in the world that offers opportunities for international investors to invest in our bonds, which has much higher yield than first world countries, and then make money through the interest rate differential. Uh, it's a so-called carry trade. What, what do you think is the future of carry trade, especially in an environment where inflation is rising worldwide and we will see higher interest rates uh, in due course? I think there will be an element of that, uh, certainly. You know, it, it's quite an interesting one. If you if you look at our peer group in terms of emerging markets, and, and certainly on a valuation basis, when, when we look at it at SASFIN, one of the things that we, we can see very clearly is that by historical standards, South Africa is uh, unlike our peers. And when I say our peers, I'm talking about the likes of, you know, the Turkeys, the Mexico, Brazil, and so forth, the emerging markets, right, is that we are at the, sitting at the very cheap end of valuations, whereas our peer group, in fact, most of them are sitting on the expensive side of things. And so certainly there is an element there which 
makes us much more attractive from a, a, a carry trade perspective. The, the, I suppose the, the fly in the ointment, if I can put it like, or term it like that in a way for, for those investors is really the currency volatility. As you know, the RAND has been fairly strong um, over the course of this year. So certainly, I think there is an element of that. But uh, more importantly, I would say for the South African bond market is to attract long-term flows rather than just the carry trade. The JSC recently stated that they will change the way in which they calculate capital flows, especially from the bond market. Initially, we thought since the beginning of the year, 100 billion RAND has left our shores, uh, foreign investors uh, withdrawing their, their investments here. But suddenly, the new way or the new calculation indicates that there's actually been a net inflow of more than 20 billion rand. Now, that is a significant Correct, yes. difference. What do you make of this? Yeah, look, you know, certainly what has been a puzzle for a lot of people this year has been how strong the rand has been. And so perhaps this, the data that the JSC has published, maybe it actually helps us to understand why the rand has been stronger than expected in the sense of you know that i think it was 22 or almost 22 billion rand net that has been added by foreign investors could well be you know one of the causality sort of dynamics behind the the rand's strength so certainly, I, I think it's been a very useful addition uh, to understanding, you know, the context of, of the currency, but as well as the bond market. Although having said that, is you know, I'll still point out that you know, South African bond yields remain by global standards exceptionally cheap. But I mean, we can still touch on, you know, why is, is that the case? Um, you know, so, so let's you know, dive in there. Questions. Why is it the case? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, I think... And as I mentioned earlier, around where our peer group is probably more on the expensive side relative to their own historical norms, South Africa's idiosyncratic risk is the key here, is that, you know, despite the fact that there have been some positives in, in the South African context, and, you know, we can look at it here in South Africa and say, yes, compared to a year ago, the economy is in a better place and so forth. But it still remains a very thin veneer in terms of uh, fragility. As, as far as the economic uh, context is concerned. And so there are worries, um, you know, that South Africa is in a position where things can easily go wrong. And that risk of things going wrong needs to be priced into our bond market. So again, th- th- that's where a, a really a very direct message to essentially treasury and to government uh, around our fiscal sustainability. So we have got the medium-term budget policy statement coming up uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And I think there will probably be better numbers than what was expected, say, three, four months ago. But that really comes down to the fact that, you know, you had this boost to government revenues, tax revenues, um, as a result of what was going on in the in, in the resource space. And I think that shielded a lot of this fragility that we've seen. And, you know, if you think about um, when government came out with the budget at the beginning of the year in February um, and spoke about what the public sector wage bill, that the salary increases were going to be. And immediately there was this talk of uh, the public sector uh, unions uh, went out and sort of said, well, you know, I won't say over my our dead bodies, but it was more a case of, well, we're going to fight that. And in the end, I think government blinked in that, those negotiations. And the reason why they could blink and uh, essentially accede to those uh, demands precisely was because of the fact that they had better tax revenues. But the problem is that's for this year, but those those increases are perpetual. 
And so, you know, there could well still be some issues if we have a downturn. And then we start thinking about what's going on in the world and what's going on in China and how closely connected are we to to the slowdown that we're seeing in China. If that is the case, we could have some issues going forward as well. Yes, there are many risks facing South Africa, especially fiscal risks. But my perception is, and, and my reading of graphs, is that our yields are currently a lot better than what it was when South Africa still was regarded as an investment grade country. Is that the case? And how do you put that into perspective? Yeah, look, I mean, we, I would probably say that, you know, South Africa has been on a, uh, a roller coaster ride as far as our bond yields is concerned. And so certainly, you know, if you, if you look back in time, and if I, let me go even further back, and we, we can sort of go back to, I suppose, in a sense, let's go back to the global financial crisis uh, of 2008, when there was a lot of concerns about what it was going to do to the economies and so forth. Um, and then we settled into a pattern. Um, South African bond yields, uh, you know, currently, if I can sort of, you know, by comparison to you know, where we have been over the, you know, the last number of years is, you know, pretty much in a range. And and if I use the 10-year yield, for example, in South Africa, you know, for the last five years, it's been in a range between, mostly between 9 and, and, and 10%, in a 1% range. And and we are on the, on the higher end at the moment. I'm going to exclude what happened in, in February, March last year when we had this massive mm. spike in yields. But if you look at it, uh, you know, over the last five odd years, it's gone nowhere, you know, and I think very, very briefly in, in, in 2018, I think we saw a dip in yields below 9% for the, for the tenure side of things. But generally speaking, it's been very, very stable. And, and certainly this is the period over which, you know, we've been downgraded as far as our rating is concerned. Just lastly, what do you expect for fixed income products over the next uh, few years? Because uh, as you've earlier said, Interest rates in South Africa is at an, I think it's a 50-year low, and a lot of people are living from fixed income products. So what, what do you think the prospects are? I, I think let's exclude now all of the risks, right? The South African idiosyncratic risk, which says there could be a spike uh, for whatever reason. So let's take that out of the equation. And then we just say what you get at the moment is if you invest in a 10-year government bond in South Africa – is a, is a return which is in double digits. Let's call it 10-odd percent, right? If inflation, and again, we won't go into that debate today, maybe we'll mm. do it at another another time, um, is let's call it 5-odd percent on average. Your real yield that you're getting there so is, is 5% um, over the course of the next 10-odd years. Now, generally speaking, one of the first things that any financial advisor is going to tell a client um, is you have to get returns in excess of inflation, right? Uh, that's the first point of all. And if you're doing that, we don't think South Africa is going to be in a disinflationary environment, and that means you're not going to be going backwards uh, in, in real terms. And so certainly this, these are very, very attractive yields for income investors. Of course, if you're sitting in the low, in the, in the, the short end of the curve, i.e. not the 10-year bond, but you're looking at one-year returns and money market space, there your returns are sitting close to 4%, which as, as you said, I mean, these are record low type yields. So if you are 
and income and you're surviving on income products on these income funds um, you should be looking at funds which have the ability to tap into that long end of the curve and you are able then to manage the volatility because you are then taking more volatility right and a lot of people who who are reliant on these funds for their income don't want to have the volatility so how do you get that sweet spot and that's essentially what we try to do within our sustain uh, flexible income fund is to be a hybrid of saying we want to tap into the long end those 10% plus yields but at the same time we're trying to deliver it in a in a way which is um, protecting the downside such that the volatility you experience is is very much reduced and i think you know if you look at our performance i think we, it bears testimony to the fact that we have been able to do that and so certainly it is possible for income investors to get uh, income yields that are well in excess of current inflation and i think that's an important uh, space it, it won't last forever i think so certainly it is there to be utilized at the moment ono thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights today great it's a great pleasure that was ono lawrence he's the chief investment officer at sasfin thanks for listening to the money web market commentator podcast where leading investment professionals share their investment insights. Hosted by Rake Fanica. For more MoneyWeb podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.